run. Hello and welcome to Here's What You Could Have Run podcast. Last episode was mostly my mate Maff and I giggling like school kids as he recounted his challenging experiences at his first ultra. Today I'm talking to a more experienced ultra runner, Sonny, who's three quarters of the way through the Centurion Grand Slam of 100 mile events. Last year he did the 50 mile slam, this year he's taken on the 100. For him and everyone else it's been a bit more challenging than the usual year as Covid has thrown a few curveballs their way. They've had a very compressed few months to try and get 300 mile races complete and not leave themselves too broken for the final which is the South Downs Way 100 coming up in November. We're going to hear how it got on at the Autumn 100 and unique aspects of the race compared to your more traditional point-to-point races. He's also got some advice to anyone attempting the force coming South Downs 100 as their first 100 miler. Two of my club mates are, including Neil, who I spoke to back in episode two. Sonny is also co-founder of Black Trail Runners, which campaigns to increase the participation, inclusion and representation of black people in trail running. It's only really when he points it out, you realise quite how lacking the average start pen at a trail run is in terms of black people. We discuss the lack of diversity in trail running and the reasons behind this, along with what he and the running community can do to tackle the issue and introduce many more runners to the sport we all love so much. It's a great interview as Sonny is really passionate about ultra running and the cause, but there were a couple of sound gremlins, so please bear with me on those. They are only brief and shouldn't interrupt your enjoyment too much. Joining me now is Sonny, an ultra runner and a representative for the Black Trail Runners. He's here now to talk about the recent fun he had on the Centurion Autumn 100. So thanks for coming on, Sonny. Thank you pleasure to be here yeah thanks for coming on so um obviously some people have heard of you because you are getting quite a big name for yourself in the ultra running uh, uh scheme at the minute i did notice from your blog that you spent a lot of autumn 100 uh saying hello to people who were recognizing you as a, as a celebrity but for anyone that's not heard of you just introduce yourself how you got into running and what you've been up to the last couple of years please yeah, so um, I'm Sonny Pierce. I wouldn't consider myself to be an ultra-running celebrity <laughs> at all, but um, I um, have, over the last few years, been uh, running quite a few ultras. So I took up running about eight years ago, uh, kind of uh, moved up through the distances to sort of 5, 10K, half marathon, marathon, and then beyond that into ultras. First round, the Race of the Stones in 2015. Um, and run a few since then and then last year I did um, Centurion's 50 mile Grand Slam which is four 50 mile races during the course of the year Um, and this year I'm doing the 100 mile Grand Slam uh, which is four 100 mile races during the course of the year Uh, slightly different this year because no no well (laughs) yeah I, I actually quite enjoyed it uh, for the most part, uh, but having said that, I would say that 100 miles is very different to 50 miles. Yeah, <laughs> it's not twice as hard. It's much harder than that. So, um, yeah, it's uh, a very different experience. But um, I'm kind. I kind of am feeling like now I'm 
getting to be a uh, an experienced ultra runner. I mean, I'm still learning. I think you know, I probably I've done I think 14 ultras, something like that, and a dozen marathons, um, which to some people sounds like a lot, but actually it's not really. So. Uh, every time I go out and run an ultra, I'm learning something new and discovering something about the running and about myself. So, um, yeah, I've got a lot more. A lot someone more describe ultras a bit more like a sort of extended car crash than sort of marathons, a bit more kind of a scientific perfecting it, aren't you, each time? Whereas ultras, everything can happen and go wrong, and it often does. So, it's more about survival than. Yeah, I mean, I think it. even. Yeah, even marathons are, you know, pretty difficult to uh, feel as though you've learned about them. Uh, you know, you can't run too many marathons well in a short period of time. Um, you know, you've running, you know, if you've been running for five years, you know, you won't have run very many marathons. I mean, obviously, there are people who run 100 marathons uh, and join that club. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're running them seriously and trying to do your best, uh, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of effort, and uh, ultras is a bit more than that. Um, you know, I've run four ultras so far this year, and five last year, and that really is kind of the limit. I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to run that probably too many, really. Um, and in that time, or in within those races, uh, you're you're still experiencing lots of different situations. Um, I mean, things, yes, they're significant, but even, uh, I think the thing with ultras is also that as well as being longer, uh, they tend to be in conditions which are very different. So, you know, they're generally not on the road, some are, but um, for that reason, the weather and the, the general conditions make a huge amount of difference and they tend, you know, they tend to be... Uh, in terms of elevation, they can be very different. Um, you know, there aren't too many marathons which are really up and down. I mean, there are a few, but um, a lot of them are generally quite flat. Yeah, uh, not big. So, um, so yeah, I mean, those things can make a huge amount of difference. Uh, and if you're doing a hundred, well, you know, you can encounter different things just during the course of the one race. Uh, you know, it can be bright and sunny when you start and it can be freezing cold later on or windy or whatever. And all of those things you've got to be able to cope with. And is that kind of what attracts you to ultras and stuff? And it's more the sort of variability uh, and challenge way, and yeah. distance? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a journey, right? That's, you know, a marathon is just a race, whereas an ultra feels like a journey. Um, yeah. A point to point one, you know, to say that I've run London to Oxford, that's you know that's something that you can kind of grasp uh, in a way, but it seems extreme. I mean, you know, people drive from London to Oxford, but running there uh, seems crazy. But um, but you get to experience that whole journey uh, in a way that you never do uh, in a car. And I, you know, that's one of the things about running, right? Is that even if you're running in your local area, you see things that you don't otherwise see. Uh, you could spend your, in, you know, live for years in somewhere and just drive around. And then as soon as you start running, you start seeing new things. Uh, and when you start running long distances, you can take that to the extreme because you're now seeing things that nobody in a car ever sees, you know, even if they That's look up. Yeah. 
uh, they can't get there. Um, so uh, you see a very different side of the country, of the landscape, uh, you know, and that's a, quite aside from the internal kind of battles that are going on <laughs> being within yourself in terms of, you know, completing those kinds of distances. And then this year, then you were obviously you're trying to do the 100 mile Grand Slam, which on a normal year would be relatively nicely spread out across the year. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's relative. I mean, normally the first one would be at the start of May um, and then you kind of got, you know, I guess, sort of six or seven months. Um, whereas this year, the first one was in August. Uh, so they are within 13 weeks of each other. So yeah. I've done three within nine weeks. Uh, and then uh, I've just had a week and a half since the last one. I've got another two and a half weeks until the next one. Uh, you know, no, no one sensible would recommend that as a routine, <laughs> um, but it is just what it is. So uh, we're making the most of it, and we're kind of grateful just to be running, frankly. Yeah, I mean, that, I think any race at the minute that anyone gets to toe the start line of is, yeah, you're just grateful to be there. Whether it's a sort of local five k or an epic hundred yeah. miler. Excellent. So the one you're here to talk about, the one you've just done, which is the Autumn One Hundred. What is it? Because it's quite different to than usual uh, 100 miles by Centurion. Yeah, so it's a uh, it's based in uh, the kind of twin villages of Goring and Streetly, which are on the Thames. They're kind of either side of a bridge across the Thames. And uh, it's the point at which uh, the Thames Path, which runs along the whole Thames, uh, and the Ridgeway, uh, which is uh, another ancient national trail uh it's a point at which those two cross each other uh so uh the race is four out and back uh well i say loops but they're not loops they're just out and back on the same route so uh, out and back lines so you go out 25 miles on the thames path in uh yeah starting going west uh, and then you do 20, you do 25 miles out and back on the Ridgeway in one direction, 25 miles out and back on the other direction on the Ridgeway. And then finally, you do 25 miles out on the Thames Path East. Uh, so you go to Reading and back again. Uh, so Reading, each yeah. time you come back to the village hall in Goring, uh, where you have a drop bag. Uh, so you've got kit, you can change and ever get your gear, uh, but then have to go back out for another train. <laughs> Uh, so it's a it's a very different challenge to a point to point uh, or a kind of loop uh, 100. Uh, sort of, it's a very it's you know it's a different psychological challenge, uh, but it also means that you've got quite different terrain that you're running on as well, which is quite actually quite nice. Mm. Uh, so it's not it's the elevation isn't huge because uh, Thames Path is obviously pretty flat. Uh, the Ridgeway does go up and down a bit, but there's, there's no, you know, there are no massive big climbs on it, really. There are a few sort of hills, but nothing serious. Um, so compared to the other ones in the series, the North Downs Way and the South Downs Way is pretty flat, really. Uh, I mean, when you did uh, the North Downs this year, it was during that kind of really random hot day, wasn't it? So you were yeah, the, by the Sahara sun. Yeah, the North Downs Way this year was really hard. Um, I mean, I've done the, obviously I did the 50 last year, uh, you know, which was also hot as I remember, but <laughs> nothing. Um, 
it was brutal uh, to a point that I mean, more than half of the field didn't finish. So yeah, it was quite. I think it was like a forty-five percent completion rate, which is you know, pretty pretty hard. So uh, I'm just really, I feel really pleased that I managed to finish that race, frankly, because uh, not many people did. So no, especially it's the first time, first one of the Grand Slam, isn't it? You don't want to be out. On yeah, the I mean, um, I think about forty odd people probably were due to do the Grand Slam this year and half of them didn't finish that race so they were out of it uh, so yeah pretty hard <laughs> so when you make it through to the end at South Downs then you'll be quite proud of the final the final few to uh, make it I will yeah uh, I think we all will I mean you know it, you kind of get a bit of camaraderie going um, so we begin to recognise each other good thing about the Autumn 100 is that you see everybody who's running Kind of doing these out and back so at some point you do see everybody um and this year because of the covid arrangements uh the other races uh have been much more distanced so you quite often just didn't see anybody <laughs> uh you know in previous years you would have seen people at the start and maybe at the finish when people hang around whereas this year the rolling start you don't see anybody and at the end people leave pretty much immediately so the autumn 100 was great because you just had these kind of crossing over people um, and those people that you knew you probably stopped and had a little bit of a chat those people that you didn't know but maybe just recognized uh, you'd at least acknowledge them and uh, you know say hi uh, so it did feel as though you were part of something a bit bigger. Yeah, that's um, a good point because it's a it's a two hour rolling start, is it for Centurion now? So uh, yeah, something like that. I think it varies a bit by race. Uh, I think they had, I think they'd lengthened it a little bit for Autumn One Hundred. So I think it was between six thirty and nine you could start. Okay. Um, and because the format of that race because it's always coming back to the central point they just really wanted to avoid congestion at that point uh, and that's really the point of the rolling start you're trying to avoid crowds at aid stations um as you stretch out the race people get stretched out anyway but because of the because of that format although they were getting stretched out they're always coming back to goring so you just wanted to make that spread out as possible uh, in the end, I, I think it worked really well. So certainly the times that I was in Goring, it was not at all crowded. Um, so, yeah, and, and, they, and the rolling start was done kind of counterintuitive. Um, you know, you kind of think of these as, we think of these in handicap terms. So people might think, well, you get the slow people to go first and then get the fast people to go last. That it's the opposite of what they did. So they wanted the fast people to go early so that the whole field got as spread out as possible. Uh, yeah. and, but, but there wasn't any kind of formal seeding or anything like that. They just trusted people to uh, choose their start time based on how long it, they thought they would take to run it. Uh, and obviously with a, a race of this length, that's always going to be a guess in some respects. Uh, you know, you can't really anticipate exactly how well you're going to do. But on the whole, you know, the real speed merchants started early and those people who thought, you know, they're going to take the full time, they started at the back uh, and it seemed to work pretty well. So, okay. In terms of things like cut-offs, how easy is that to keep on top of? Because, you know, normally if everyone starts at 
6 a.m. or whatever, um, and it's a 30 hour cut off. You just had 30 hours on if you started sometime between then and 9 30. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it made it a little bit more difficult, but you know, frankly, most people are most people have got a watch and they know how long they've been running for. Uh, and if you've prepared properly, then you've probably done the calculations beforehand. If, like me, you're a bit of a geek, uh, and lots of runners, lots of ultra runners certainly are geeks. Uh, you've probably done a spreadsheet. You've probably yeah. <laughs> uh, done those calculations, and so yeah, I I, I don't think it's that difficult. I, and the certainly the race organisers uh, are tracking that themselves. So if you are a, a volunteer at one of the aid stations, which I've been at the fifties this year, uh, you you're you're getting told if there's a runner who's coming in who looks like they're going to miss the cutoff. Yeah. Uh, so you know someone is tracking you even if you're not doing it yourself but That's good you know, frankly know. those people those people who are you know teasing the cutoffs they generally know that that's what they're doing so yeah <laughs> cool so um what's something i did notice reading your blog is you had quite an unusual pacing strategy for the well straight off from the start to be honest. i know a lot of people kind of almost go into it, run until they get tired and then walk and others have very regimented walk the hills, but you had a very regimented pace you were trying to maintain. Yeah, well, the, because the first leg was on the Thames path, that was flat. So it meant that, you know, I could have a, a pace that I knew I could keep. Um, and I'd done the Thames path 100, you know, just over a month before. And on that, I had set off at a particular pace uh, and it had kind of worked, I guess. Uh, so I'd adjusted it a little bit for this one. Uh, so, yeah, I did this thing where I, I, was, I definitely wanted to kind of run walk from the start. So, um, you know, one of the first pieces of advice I ever got when I decided to run 100 a few years ago uh, was just run walk from the start mm -hmm. uh don't attempt to run for 20 miles and then see how yeah. you feel uh, you know conserve your energy uh so uh that's definitely what i was doing uh and my particular way of doing it was to think okay i want to run sort of 12 and a half minute miles which is you know seems ludicrously slow if you're you know talking about a marathon or something like that but if you're running 100 miles that's that's not that slow, frankly, no. certainly not for me. Uh, you know, that would get me in, you know, I guess a little over 20 hours, which would be an, an amazing result for me. <laughs> um, so I, I know I'm not going to do that for the entire race, but it's a really easy, manageable pace for the first part of the race. So for that flat section, that's what I did. And what I would basically do is just run at whatever pace felt comfortable, uh, when I got to a mile, I would just stop and walk until my 12 minutes and 30 was up. Uh, that might take me somewhat into the next mile, and then I'd run again uh, until my, you know, until I got 25 minutes, and then walk again. You know? So, um, so yeah, so it feels a bit weird, but it gives me something to think about as I'm doing those calculations in my head, and it ensures that. Although I might be going above my pace, I'm never going to get way above it. And I'm always going to have that rest and my heart rate is going to stay you know, relatively low. 
So yeah, I and you know that was easy to do for 25 miles. There was, you know, there was no difficulty doing that, and it gives you enough time now that I'm pretty efficient at aid stations so I don't spend a lot of time there so by the time I kind of worked up a little bit of a gap or leeway in that uh, strategy uh, you know five minutes ten minutes whatever spend five minutes at the aid station I'm still at my 12 and a half minute miles so I can just carry on doing it um, and then for the next leg now I knew I was going to have to be doing some up and down hills. So I knew that was going to be harder. Um, so I, I knew I wouldn't be able to do that. So my strategy for that was then kind of run the flats and downs and hike or walk the ups uh, and see how I got on basically. Um, and it was a bit slower. So I think the first 25 I did in five hours, the second 25 I did in six. Uh, but I wasn't, you know, that was perfectly fine. That's not too bad. Uh, but then the the third leg on this race is, to me, certainly, is the hardest. So um, it's a little bit bleak. By then <laughs> it's nighttime. Uh, so you're running with a light, uh, which generally makes things a bit slower. Mm. Uh, but also the underfeet conditions were pretty sticky. Um, so you were kind of in the mud or you're sliding around uh, and that's you know, that just makes it impossible to get any kind of running rhythm going even if you feel able to do that uh so yeah things slowed down quite a bit on that one so i think yeah i mean it took me seven hours to do that leg so that was but that's uh, i mean like you said that is a quite a bleak exposed section of course isn't it i know when i did it, yeah I mean, you're, run, you're, you're, you're running up to this place called Chain Hill and, it, you know, it sounds grim and it's <laughs> grim, really. Uh, yeah, it's pretty exposed. I mean, to be honest, we, or to be fair, we, this year, the conditions were as good as they could have been. Mm. Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't raining. Uh, we'd had a couple of showers early on in the day, but nothing major. Uh, it wasn't overly cold. Some people did get cold, but I think if you had the right kit and you were moving, you would be, you know, you were fine. I'd certainly fine getting cold. Um, but, uh, I mean, compared to last year, when I was volunteering on that third leg at East Ilsley, which is the halfway aid station on that third leg, I mean, it rained for pretty much 20 hours nonstop <laughs> last year. It was cold. Uh, and you know people were really really suffering uh, so compared to that it was nothing like that at all uh, it was you know we couldn't really have asked for better conditions so you know if you if you found this week this year hard on that race then you know then you would find any year really hard because it was as good as it could be uh, but even having said that that third leg is still pretty difficult. I mean, I, I find that no matter what distance I'm running, uh, the third quarter of any race is always the hardest for me yeah. for some reason. Um, halfway through it, so you're feeling tired, you've done half of the work, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, and whether it's 10K, whether it's half marathon, or whether it's 100 miles, just that third quarter, just psychologically, is really difficult. Uh, so... Uh, I found it like that today, even, it, this year, even though I, you know, I expect that. Uh, and I guess part of what helped me through that was that I, you know, by then I was, you know, I was 
well ahead of any cutoffs. I had, didn't have any concerns about that. So I was already convinced that I would definitely finish this race. Um, and I also knew that I had my pacer waiting for me at the end of that third leg. And once you reach that point, then kind of some of the responsibility you feel as though that's taken away from you. So yeah. you feel as though, okay, if I get to the point, my pacer will get me to the end. Um, obviously, I've still got to do the running, but <laughs> given that a lot of running is in your head and not in your legs or in your chest, having someone else there to encourage you and to motivate you just makes a huge amount of difference. Uh, I've, this, this is the first year I've ever run with a pacer. And, you know, I can see why people do it because they, you know, I, I know that I have run faster because that pacer was there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds silly, really. You know, I'm a grown, I'm a grown adult. I, you know, <laughs> I should be able to get myself to do this stuff. But actually just having someone that you know, someone that uh, you like, someone that cares about you, telling you to do something uh, makes a difference. Uh, you kind of don't want to let them down. You, you know, you want to respond to what they're doing. Um, and so you do. Uh, and you just push yourself or it becomes easier to push yourself. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's not that you can't push yourself, mm. but it becomes easier to do that. Um, so yeah, it's, no, really one, once I got to 75 miles, I knew I was going to be okay. And then it was a question of, you know, just how quickly am I going to do this? That, that last leg is probably the worst in terms of scenery and everything, isn't it? It's still middle of the night and it's a pretty grim, slog out to Reading and back it's not the kind of picturesque of the previous loop is it it's it's grim <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a mixture actually I a lot of people don't like the bit through Reading but I I, I don't mind it that much so uh, the first part out of Goring to Pangborn is quite scenic it's by the river you've got some woods it's a bit up and down that's the only part of the Thames Path which yeah. is a bit kind of hilly uh, so that's quite nice uh, but yeah, I mean, the, from Pangborn into Reading, it's it's flat and there's a lot of, you know, it's kind of a narrow track for a lot of the time and then towpath. And it's infamous for being deceptively long. So you yeah. <laughs> get to Reading, there's the sign famously that says, welcome to Reading. And if you've never, if you haven't done this race before or you haven't read anything about it you kind of think oh well i'm at reading you know the, the turnaround can't be far away but the turnaround is about another five miles away i mean it's the other side of reading so it's a long way away uh but yeah i mean it's 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 not super attractive you're right but equally uh you're on the last leg so you know that if i get when i get to the turnaround it's i'm on the home stretch yeah, and because it's a part of the route that I've run more than once, it's on the Thames Path, and I've run the Thames Path, you know, hundred twice now. So I'm fairly familiar with it. Um, I'm just seeing stuff that I know, and it didn't feel that bad. And equally, the other thing at that point for me certainly was that uh, because of the way I pace my race, uh, at that point I'm overtaking people. So, um, you know, I start off relatively slow uh, and try and maintain my pace, whereas other people, for whatever reason, very often go out quite quickly and then 
you know, by the time they're doing their last 25 miles, they're not running at all. They're walking um, and I'm going past them. And I think I, I think I overtook maybe sort of 14 or 15 people on the way out to Reading and another 12 on the way back. So I'm going past, you know, one person a mile at that point, which is quite a nice thing to do. Yeah, it does feel good, doesn't it? Just to be making progress. Yeah, so, you know, you're running with somebody and they're saying, okay, there's another light up ahead. Let's see if we can catch them. And you do catch them and then you do that. And then there's another one. And that feels pretty good. It feels nice. So, yeah, the I think I ran the last the last 25 miles, I think I did in about six hours. So it was much the same as the second 25 that I'd done. And my time back from Reading was, I think, six minutes faster than my time out to Reading so I kind of did a negative split on that last leg so to do you know to do the last 12 and a half miles of a hundred miler in less than three hours that's pretty good for me yeah <laughs> I'm quite happy with it that's the thing about ultras isn't it if you said that to somebody who runs half marathon they'd be flabbergasted wouldn't they but when you've when you've got that many miles in your legs anything more than walking is an achievement yeah and you know but I think you know, almost by, well, for me anyway, by that stage, running is no different to walking in terms of the amount of pain that it causes you. <laughs> so, um, you know, the only thing that's really stopping me running is my heart rate. Uh, you know, if I run for a while, that gets you know, pretty high, so I have to stop. But in terms of how my legs feel, how my feet feel, walking hurts. So running doesn't hurt much more. In fact, hurt less, I and in terms of keeping going, then how are you fueling yourself? Because obviously you don't seem to be falling off a cliff in terms of pace. You must be pretty on top of your food and water intake. Yeah, so I've I've learned that uh, hydration is really important for me. So you know, I'm quite a heavy sweater. <laughs> uh, not so bad on this race because it wasn't that hot. But, you know, I know that I have to drink a lot uh, right from the start. Uh, equally, I know that... You know, you have to start fueling early and mm. just force calories in as possible. So what I try to do is eat uh, real food uh, from as early as possible. So I've, I've developed a taste for uh, just salted boiled potatoes. Uh, so I do those the night before, uh, just some new potatoes, stick them in a bag with salt or bags with salt, uh, have one in my pack, have one in my drop. You know, I have a couple in my drop bag and I'll just sort of eat those. They're really easy to digest and eat uh, and, you know, full of energy uh, as well as salt. And I also use Tailwind, which is the sort of electrolyte drink, uh, and which is, is always supplied at Centurion events. But I mean, others do as well. And you can obviously just get your own. And theoretically you could run the whole thing on tailwind i don't you know it wouldn't be terribly great for your digestion but you could do it um and certainly for me combined with you know a minimal amount of real food that pretty much works so um you know i at eight stations i might have a little bit bag of crisps or you know a bit of fruit or whatever but i mean again that's kind of changed a little bit so this year or in previous years, aid stations would have much more solid food. So they would have sandwiches and cakes and all kinds of stuff that people had made. None of that's there this year because of the COVID thing. So uh, you've got individual portions of things. 
so yeah, there's the odd little sort of mini sausage roll and stuff, but you know, there's no sandwiches, there's no ham sandwiches, there's no oh, cheese sandwiches. No. <laughs> you know, I would, I, you know, I would happily run on ham sandwiches. So um, that's a bit different. Uh, but then, you know, it encourages you also to uh, potentially get your own crew. And if you've got your own crew, then you can just choose whatever food you want. So uh, the Thames path, I did have a crew for the first half. And so, yeah, Greg's sausage rolls did me for the first half. Yeah, so <laughs> I call it if you <laughs> call it, No, I mean, I'd, yeah, I tend to eat as much food as I can as well, but. Tailwind, like you said, I think it does work, but it's I wouldn't want to do a whole hundred mile on it unless I was really having stomach issues and that's all I could keep down. You kind of go for it and see what happens, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I to be fair, for for the North Downs way, because it was so hot, um, you know, within ten or twenty miles, I just could not eat anything solid. Um, it was just too hot. I was just trying to get as down as possible. Um, and luckily a lot of that fluid was tailwind. So it was giving me <laughs> some calories as well as hydration. Because I just would not have completed that race. I mean, the only solid food I ate from 20 miles on was uh, bananas. So, <laughs> which are okay, I guess, but you wouldn't want to live on them as a diet. Cool. So by the time of year that we've got, you must have had darkness for about 12 hours or so. So... What's it like on the darkness and did you have an instance with cows? Because I know a few of my uh, running friends are yeah. petrified of cows. Yeah, cows don't bother me that much. But um, yeah, I mean, it was dark for a lot of it. Uh, the third leg was all in darkness. Uh, and the final leg was mostly in darkness. Um, but I think once you've had some experience with running in the dark, I mean, it just doesn't bother me particularly. Uh, you know, it's a pretty well marked course. Mm um and yeah there was one part where on the thames path where we did encounter some cows uh, but they were all asleep just lying on the <laughs> ground uh it just felt a bit eerie running between them and um, a few years ago i was i was running a uh an ultra in somerset uh and i happened to be running with a guy who was kind of a local guy who had grown up on a farm and we came across some cows on the trail uh, and I wasn't quite sure what to do, uh, but he, you know, just instantly went into cow herding mode, I think, and just kind of shouted at them and got them to move, and they just moved. Um, and and you know, and I said, and he kind of said, yeah, that's what you need to do. Just tell them what to do, and they'll get out of the way. Um, and so, so yeah. So this year on the North Downs Way, I did encounter some cows, and I saw a runner ahead of me who gone all the way around this field like way way <laughs> off the trail because there were some cows on the trail um and i just got to them and i just did what he did i just shouted at them and said yeah get out of the way um and they did you know they kind of look at you a bit weird and then they just kind of amble off uh <laughs> you know they're not bothered particularly um and yeah so by the time i got to the other side of the field that runner was just about coming back around as well so um yeah cows don't really bother i mean i know they are they can be hazardous but i think if you're sensible they're, they're not a problem <laughs> excellent cool so the end of the uh you think we're getting daylight towards the end so was that good coming in the end of your, your third hundred feeling with the sun coming up feeling good yeah it's always nice when the sun comes up uh you know your body just responds to that 
positively. Uh, it's always it's always good just for there to be light and a bit of warmth. Um, uh, yeah, and and this particular time, I was feeling really good about the time I was doing. So um, I think we left Reading, and I was thinking oh, we can probably get back uh, and do a PB for me, uh, which I'd done at the Thames Bath like a few weeks before. Um, I thought we could beat that. And as we made our way back, we were obviously doing that. And then once we got closer to Goring, thought not only can we do that, I think we can get in under 25 hours here. Uh, and sure enough, that's what we did. So, yeah, I think it's partly the wet, you know, it's partly the light, yes. Um, but it's also the fact that you're just close to the end. Um, if you're, you know, if you're feeling tired, if you've got 20 miles to go, that's quite hard. But if you've got five to go, then, hey, you can just go, right? So, uh, I mean, it sounds like, a, it sounds ridiculous, but, you know, I remember very clearly my first 100 miler and thinking, at getting to the point where there was a marathon to go, and that was the process in my head. There's only a marathon to go. Only a marathon. Yeah, and, you know, to... You know, people who don't do this stuff, that sounds mad. But in a 100 miler, that sounds good. It's, you know, that's not very far compared to what you've done. So on this particular one, the A100, you know, the last leg is 25 miles. So you've already got less than a marathon to go. Yeah, sure. Turn around, you got 12, you know, you got less than a half marathon to go. So, you know, anything under 10 miles, once you're in single digits, just doesn't feel that significant i mean obviously it's a distance to go but you know that you're going to make it unless you know i'm literally the process in my head is unless i break my leg now i'm definitely getting to the end of it um and in fact you're even thinking if i do break my leg i could probably crawl to the end of this and still make <laughs> it so you know you're going to finish and that to me that's a big that's a big boost excellent so you've done three out of the four now so out of the ones you've done, what would you say is the hardest or the easiest, your favourite? <laughs> uh, the hardest was definitely North Downs Way. Uh, I think it would have been anyway, even if it hadn't been stupidly hot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a lot of elevation. It's got some steep hills. Uh, the middle section of it is really tough. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful route, but it's really hard. So, you know, and this year it was just brutal. Uh, if you didn't manage your hydration, you were in big trouble right from the start. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely the hardest. Um, to be frank, I think the Autumn 100 was the easiest. Uh, Thames Bath, in some ways, I like because it's totally flat, but a lot of people don't like it for that mm. reason because it, you don't get any relief in terms of the muscle groups that you're using. So it's just a non-stop run on the flat. And the Autumn 100 is, gives you relief because, yes, you've got flat bits, but then you've got these up and downs, and that, that feels a bit different. Normally, or at least quite often, the Autumn 100 is in bad weather conditions, whereas this year the weather was great. So it was much easier than Thames Park, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, the fact, that I, the fact that I could run it half an hour faster, 
five weeks later tells you it must have been easier because that shouldn't happen really <laughs> yeah the, the course record is actually slightly quicker isn't it on the autumn than the Thames path which yeah but i think you say it doesn't really make sense yeah but I, but i mean it really is i mean having said that i think i think the course record was last year if i remember rightly uh henrik westerling if i'm getting that right but um and I, I saw him running that and he was just a machine. So that doesn't surprise me. So, I mean, he, he went past us at the aid station as though, you know, it was nothing at all to him. So uh, it was pretty exceptional. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't pay too much attention to that stuff because those, those things you know, tend to be, you know, a runner who is exceptional having an exceptional day. Right, so, yeah. you know, I'm not comparing myself to any of that stuff. So um, you did mention obviously the, with the out and bat, it is quite easy to drop. Were you ever tempted on this, or was it particularly having a pacer for the last one? Um, I wasn't, um, and that's you know partly because I was just having a good race, so I, you know, I didn't have any major issues really, um, and also because because it was the third of four for me, uh, you know, I'm pretty well invested in it already. <laughs> You know, I'm not thinking, you know, when I get to 50 miles, I'm not thinking I'm halfway through. I'm thinking I've actually, I'm more than halfway through the whole four races. So uh, it would have taken a lot to have got me to stop in that race. Uh, but, you know, I absolutely understand how that's not the same for other people. Uh, you know, it, it's just easy. Your stuff's there, your car's probably there. And yeah. the thought of going out for another 25 miles is not. <laughs> fun <laughs> or you know if you've got something wrong uh you know it it cannot be fun so um yeah i absolutely understand it uh, but i think one thing i have learned even though i still don't consider myself to be a really experienced ultra runner is that aid stations are not places to stop uh, in my early races, you know, I'd see them as being places where you can sit down, have a rest and regroup. Um, now I don't see them like that. Occasionally I might do that, but for the most part, I'm just, they're just a opportunity to refill water and get food if you need it and just carry on and don't feel guilty that you're not making use of the services that the volunteers are providing. Just you know so for at least a few aid stations this year i've just run straight past them uh, which i've never done before uh, and it makes a big difference you know, if you've got 10 aid stations in a race if you spend 10 minutes in each of those that's you know that's nearly two hours onto your yeah, race all gone. <laughs> uh, so yeah that's the time you could have spent running so um yeah i I've been much more efficient and in a way this year has been easier to do that because the COVID changes, uh, volunteers aren't able to um, assist you in the same way. So, you know, you have to get, you have to do your own drinks. They've got food in individual portions that you just pick up. Uh, so it's, there's much less temptation, I think, to spend time there. Uh, some people clearly still do, uh, but not me. I occasionally, just to adjust my kit or do something, I sit down. But other than that, I'm pretty much through them. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So, where's after you've done three now as your fourth count? Do you feel you kind of almost find it easier? Is, is each one almost training for the next one? 
yeah, well, I think because they're so close together this year, um, that's what they are. You can't do anything else. I haven't got time to, you know, in four weeks, I haven't got time to recover and then regain and then try, do any more training. And then all all I'm doing <laughs> is just recovering. That's all I'm doing. So, uh, you know, since Autumn 100, which was 10 days ago now, I haven't run a step. Uh, I told myself I was not going to run for two weeks. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. I'll run this weekend uh, with my pacer for South Downs Way. I'll do a fair amount of running next week uh, and then very little the week after just to feel as fresh as it's possible to be yeah. uh, for the last one. But, you know, no, as I said, no sensible person would run 200 milers. <laughs> four weeks apart and they definitely wouldn't run four of them 13 weeks apart uh, so all of the work for them was done in the first half of the year so you know I'd run I don't know maybe 1200 miles or something close to that by kind of July this year uh, you know that was training for these races you know, anything I've done since then has just been about staying healthy really with training then obviously although Centurion are very good at keeping everyone updated things could still change so you spent yeah six months a year training for a series of races that may never happen so how do you keep motivated for that because it would have been probably quite tempting just to go down the pub yeah yeah you're right it was really difficult well it's interesting because you know my year was I I planned things out a long way in advance so Know, to do this i was planning to do this well over a year ago you know i'm getting my sort of entrance in entries in for this um so having done the 50 slam last year kind of finished in november took a few weeks off in december and then started my training for this um and my schedule was sort of building up to april running a marathon in april then the South Downs Way 50 at the end of April before the Thames Path in May. While I was running that marathon, sort of early April, uh, the Moyle Man Marathon down in Sussex, that's when the news came through that the South Downs Way was cancelled. Yeah. Uh, literally <laughs> while I was on the road. Um, you turned around and went home, yeah? Well, no, but it, it almost felt like, okay, well, you know, my, my year's running is over, right? Mm. So... Um, and obviously at that point we're all being affected and you know trying to figure out what's going on with the whole virus thing uh you know we were in fact you know in fact that race was the last race before lockdown i think that was a sunday and i think lockdown was announced on the tuesday afterwards or whatever. so um it was you know really felt like everything had gone uh, and nothing was going to happen um and then i think the godsend was that running was one of the few things you were allowed to do uh, yeah so uh and i you know, was fortunate i'm uh in a job where um we had already moved to working at home uh so i could work at home and then once a day i could go out and run uh, which is what i did i ran every day uh not far because know the situation was you didn't want to be you didn't really want to be running far from home and i was just running in local suburban streets uh, but uh but i was running every day so 
by the time I got to sort of June, I, you know, I still had a base of fitness going. I, I built it up and I hadn't lost it, let's say. Um, and, but at the, but at that point, I still thought we weren't going to have any races this year at all. That's yeah. what it felt like. Um, and I just remember having a conversation with James, uh, the podcast that I think you've listened to. And uh, we had that conversation at the end of it. You know, we had a quick chat about what else was going on. He said, oh, yeah, I think we're going to do the North Downs Way. We're, you know, we're, we're set to do it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How can that be possible? But it was. And, and that kind of made me think, okay, so I've got six weeks now between now and this race, uh, which was just enough to be able to get in a, some serious miles and still have a little bit of table time. Uh, so I think I, I felt as well prepared as I could have been given the circumstances. I mean, I think, I think one of the reasons that lots of people didn't finish that race apart from the heat was that they just weren't well prepared for it. They hadn't, their training had been disrupted or they just hadn't been doing it because they just didn't think it was going to go ahead. Yeah. Um, you can kind of flag a marathon or something, couldn't you? Say London had gone. Yeah, that, that's right. That I mean, I, you know, I, I feel as though, yeah, if you told me I had to run a marathon tomorrow, I could go and run it. But, 100 miles you can't blag 100 miles it's, no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it will find you out basically very definitely <laughs> so you've got one left though are you feeling confident now then of the originally this would have been a sort of spring marathon lots of daylight nice dry trails across the south downs and instead you've got nearly a winter marathon ultra i guess in yeah so I, i've been worried about it uh, because of that uh, the South Downs can be cold and exposed you know, in April or May. So in November, it could be pretty horrid. Um, but I've been looking at the long-term weather forecast <laughs> ever since I finished Autumn 100. Uh, and at the moment, it's not looking too bad. Um, so I, you know, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, in terms of fitness, I feel fine. Um, and again, I've got... Uh, my pacer from North Downs Way, uh, she is pacing me for this one from halfway. So I know that if I get to halfway, she'll get me home. Um, and I love the South Downs Way as a route. So I've run the South Downs Way 50 a couple of times. But you I've know run the route race, then, don't you? I've yeah. run the Race of the King on that route. Um, and yeah, so the second half I know pretty, pretty well and I really like it. So uh, yes, it's going to be dark, uh, but that just is what it is I, and in terms of kind of cold and stuff if you're moving that's not such an issue and if you've got the right kit that's not such an issue and i think both of those things are in my control right so uh, i've got the kit running or not that's what will keep me warm so i right now i i feel as though without wanting to tempt fate the only thing that's going to stop me doing this is a lockdown across the country so uh as long as the government keeps out of it i think this is in the bag yeah okay cool yeah two of my mates are doing it for their first ever hundred so yeah yeah they've uh, gone from like i said a nice spring one to possibly a slightly <laughs> challenging winter hundred miler for their first yeah ever i think i think you've just got to adjust your i think you just have to adjust your mentality towards it i mean it's it, it would be very easy to to let that derail your whole race um i've seen you know i've encountered that myself um you know, three years ago i think um i was running race to the stones for the second time 
And that year, every race up until that point, the weather had been lovely. Uh, just been clear and, you know, probably a bit too warm, but, you know, nice weather. Mm-hmm. And so always in my head, when I was visualizing this race, that's what it was. It was just like, I'm going to run along the Ridgeway in sunny weather. It'd be nice. <laughs> uh, and when I actually got there, it was overcast and it started raining pretty much immediately after we started. And in my head, that just felt awful. It was like, this, I wasn't prepared for this. Why? You know, this is terrible. I'm not sure I can cope with this. And I literally had to stop and give myself a bit of a talking to and like, no, come on, Sonny, it's it's just a bit of rain. What, you know, just because you weren't expecting it to rain doesn't mean that you can't deal with it. But it's really easy to get into that mindset that this is how it's going to be. And of course, that isn't how things work in these kinds of races. The weather can change, you know, over the course of the race, it can change really quickly and you just have to be adaptable and just, uh, you know, be prepared to cope with the conditions that you're presented with. You can't change those, you can't control those, but what you can do is manage them when they happen. Uh, And if you, in your head, you're kind of thinking it shouldn't be like this, then that's not a good position to be in. You're gonna, you know, that's not gonna work for you. So um, so for your friends, uh, Mm. not that I know them, but if I were were giving them advice, it would be, you know, forget that spring summer marathon thing. Uh, Just get your head around the fact that you're going to be running a hundred miles in November. And that's what it's going to be like. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Thank you. Yeah. If you say they're called uh, John and Neil, so if you see him, give him a little, give him a chair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool. And then uh, outside of uh, your experiences yourself and also you also, as I mentioned at the start, your co-founder of Black Trail Runners, is that correct? Yeah. So what is Black Trail Runners? Because I have to admit, until I kind of stumbled across it on that uh, Centurion Running podcast, it's not something I'd heard of. And in a way, it's not something even considered because I think we're, we're gradually getting more aware that, you know, in terms of gender, uh, ultras are very sort of one-sided and there's varying, you know, policies and procedures to try and improve that. But I think until I kind of, yeah, heard about black trail runs. I didn't really twig that yeah, when you stood in a start pen, it generally is middle-aged white guys, people like me, yep. basically. So <laughs> yeah, if anybody's pointed out, you kind of go, God, we are like ninety-nine percent white. So yeah. and, and you're not wrong. It literally is ninety-nine <laughs> percent. Um. So yeah, I mean that that's the whole thing. So uh. So Black Trail Runners is uh, a group uh, who's, uh, which is a, we call it a community and campaigning group. Uh, and our aim is to increase the participation, uh, inclusion and representation of black people in trail running. Uh, and the, the starting point of that is that uh, if you look at the statistics around how many people are involved in trail running, um, black people are very underrepresented. Um, if we look at the population of the UK, um, the uh, non-white population is around 18%. Um, if we look at uh, the non-white percentage of people in trail running that we know of, uh, it's more like 5%. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty big discrepancy. And within that, uh, you know, people who the government considers to be black 
Uh, the population would be 3%, and in ultra trail running, it's not even one. Um, yeah, it's not un it literally is not unusual for there to be no black people at all in a trail race. So, um, you know, I self-identify as black, but as far as the government are concerned, I'm not. I'm mixed race. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not part of that 3%, uh, but I've been in races where I'm the only person who would even consider black consider themselves to be black mm. uh let alone be treated as black you know statistically so uh there's definitely underrepresentation um and then the question becomes well why are they underrepresented yeah i was gonna say is there a reason for it or <laughs> yeah well you know so you know is it that they are you know genetically unpredisposed to running no that clearly doesn't matter <laughs> Um, is it that they don't want to do these things? No, not really. There's no reason to believe that. Uh, so, you know, there are some social and economic reasons why this is the case. Mm. Um, so some, you know, purely economic reasons, trail running, ultra running are not cheap. We think that they might be, uh, we think of them as being, you know, fairly pure and natural, but they're really not. Uh, if you want to do these things well and successfully, it's not, it's expensive. You've got to get kit. Um, you know, coming from the Autumn 100, you know, you're talking about, you know, decent waterproof jackets. You know, that's, that's hundreds of pounds to do yeah, that. Yeah, Proper trail shoes, another hundred pounds. Uh, proper running vest, you know, it, it, you know, it can amount to a lot of money. Um, so, and we know that uh, people of colour are on average less well off than white people in the UK. Uh, there's all, also a, uh, a geographic thing here. So, you know, the vast majority of uh, black people in the UK live in cities. Uh, they do not live in the countryside. Uh, so getting access to trails and trail running is just that bit harder. Uh, you know, not saying it's impossible, uh, but, you know, there's a barrier there. If you live in Tottenham or Hackney, um, you know, you haven't got trails on your doorstep. Uh, if you live in the Cotswolds, you have, uh, but black people don't live in the Cotswolds on the whole. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, there's that as well. And then there's this issue about kind of skills and representation as well. So, you know, if you've grown up in the city and have never you know, really spent any time in the countryside, you don't know what to do there. You don't know what you need to do. You don't know how to behave in a way that's going to be safe or appropriate and it's almost sounds ridiculous but you know it is a serious issue in that uh you know give you an example a few couple of months ago i'm running in my local uh, area i've got a sort of my kind of favorite five mile route from home a little loop but it takes in a farm you know there's a farm in harrow in northwest london which is a bit weird but there is it's a dairy farm and um I'm running through the farm and there's a there's a bit where a road goes through it and then there's a five-bar gate on the other side and it's one of these big metal gates and I'm coming to it and there's this family or at least a mother and two children I guess they're her children uh, and they're ahead of me and they're coming to the gate and I'm thinking oh okay I'll just wait for them to go through the gate and then I'll just run past them and carry on they get to the gate and then they stand in front of it and they literally have no idea how to open the gate and it's one of these ones with a kind of latch and the big kind of bar oh, yeah, at the top yeah. where you can pull the latch back or you can just do the latch here 
no idea. They're looking at this side of the gate, they're looking at that side of the gate. They clearly have never encountered a gate like this before. And there are gates like this all over the country. Now, mm. If you ran 10 miles in the countryside, you would encounter more than one of these gates and they've never seen one. Um, I had to open the gate for them. And I'm thinking, yeah, we just assume that people know how things are, but they don't, unless you've actually experienced them. Why would you know that this is how it works? And that's just the gate. Imagine how they felt when they got to the other side and there's like a field full of cows. <laughs> I, I'm fine with cows, but if they've never even seen a gate like that, they've definitely not seen cows before. So I'm like, right. what the hell? How are they going <laughs> to cope with that? So, um, you know, that experience, you know, it's not that people can't experience new things, but, you know, that's the, now that's outside of people's comfort zones uh, and if you you know if you're deciding what to do on a weekend uh what you're going to do you're going to do the things that you know how to do you're going to do the things that you don't know how to do you're going to do the things that leave you open to being at risk or ridiculed or whatever uh and part of that sort of in interrelated to that is this idea that um a lot of the countryside in the UK is what we would think of as being a white space. So generally the people that are there are white and we know that. Mm. Um, so being a black person in that space uh, can feel unusual. It feels awkward. Um, and, you know, if you're a black person in the UK, chances are you've had run-ins with authority, which have not been great and you've not enjoyed them. Uh, and you don't want to put yourself in those kinds of situations. So again, it's about where do I feel comfortable? Well, I feel comfortable where I live, where there are more people like me and where I know what the rules are and what, how things work. You're going to send, you know, am I going to go out into the countryside where I don't know anybody, where I don't really know how things work, I don't know who I'm going to encounter and where the space that I'm in is it even public? Am I even allowed there? I don't know that. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, so for, you know, and it might not be the right response, but the response of a lot of people will be, I'm just not going to do that then. So I'm just not going to go there. Um, and part of what we're trying to do as Black Trail Runners is make that more possible and more accessible for people uh, so that they do feel comfortable doing that. Uh, so doing things that, give them the skills so doing workshops that help them learn about trail running and running out in the countryside um, also about providing representation so seeing people like them in those kinds of spaces uh, some of that's pretty straightforward we can you know show pictures of ourselves doing those things you know, because again this is you know that's a big issue that uh, companies who inhabit this space so whether they are kind of event companies whether they are manufacturers of running gear and trail running kit um, whether they are I don't know tourist organizations or whatever a lot of the represent a lot of the images that they show are of white middle-class people doing these things yeah definitely. Uh, and it's again it kind of sounds trivial but if I look at something and I'm thinking about doing this thing and the only people I see doing it are not people who look like me, then that's not encouraging. And it's not that it's saying you can't come here. It's just it's what it's not doing is saying there are people like you already here. Uh, and that's quite a big difference. Uh, so 
part of what we're doing or part of what we're trying to do as black trail runners is increase that representation so that the image of trail running and that kind of outdoor activity is not kind of what it is but what we want it to be so you know if you've got a race as many trail races will be right now that 99% of the people running it are white middle-aged guys and yeah. <laughs> um, if that's the image that you're going to show online well guess what you're just going to get more white middle-aged guys running it um, but if you don't want that to happen you need to show other people doing it and that takes some effort uh, so show people of color running it show women running it uh, show younger people running it whatever uh, give a representation of it which is what you want to see not what it has been Mm -hmm. uh so uh you know that's that's how you can encourage process you know, progress in some you know and some people will say well you know that's that's a bit inauthentic or you know that's not telling the truth but you know to us that's a false argument it really is about what do we want this to be uh you know if you want things to stay the same then carry on doing the same things that you've been doing but don't don't come to us and profess that there isn't a problem because we know there's a problem. Uh, and then having agreed there's a problem, don't then say, well, we're not going to do anything about it. You've got to do something different. And so, you know, we're working with lots of event companies, uh, manufacturers and brands uh, to do exactly those things, to try and increase inclusion, try and increase representation. Uh, and so far, been going pretty well i think so uh, we're certainly getting a lot of good responses um and we've got some really interesting campaigns coming up in the next uh months uh also so yeah watch this space and then you've had the front cover of things like runners world and stuff haven't you so you've, yeah. you've been getting the so, message yeah. yeah runners world have been have responded really well um you know to be fair you know they we well, not me, but one of our co-founders, Sabrina, uh, you know, called them out for, uh, you know, frankly, some fairly lazy, tokenistic journalism. Um, you know, they, well, had a, they had a... Well, yeah, I mean, the... So back in June, July, uh, the whole kind of Black Lives Matter stuff was getting more prominence. And like a lot of media and a lot of brands, Runners World responded to that. Um, and for the first time in forever, they put a black runner on the cover. Uh, but it was a black, it was a photo of a black runner that was five years old and the runner was a South African runner. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was basically a, you know, uh, an archive shot that they just picked out and it was just lazy and it was just, you know, you couldn't find an actual runner today that you could represent. Your cover. And, that, and that's literally the, you know, that's literally the conversation Sabrina had with them. It's like, you know, come on, you could have tried harder than this, surely. Um, and they, to be fair to them, they held their hands up and said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and one of the issues, of course, um, is not just about the representation of people of colour in running races, but in the decision making around so many of these things. Um, runner's world just like many other organizations for historical reasons uh is generally populated by middle class white people and <laughs> yeah. you know there you know there are no black voices in the room so they're not considered and it's not that they're maliciously you know discriminating it's just that it just that these things just don't occur to them um and 
so you know but once they're raised with them it's like oh yeah you're right actually you know we could have just done this couldn't we we could have actually got a real runner um yeah so eventually they have and they've run a they've run a, a whole edition that had you know lots of voices from the black community including myself and other people uh so you know getting it out there and not not without not without some opposition there's plenty of you know you just go on their twitter feed or go on their instagram and you'll see some people are saying why are you doing this yeah um, people are yeah there's always that element sadly isn't there yeah, but but that just convinces us that that's why we have to do it okay so uh, while those attitudes are still out there uh you know there's work to be done uh and yeah so you know we're doing more of that um Know, appearing in various media like this and uh, elsewhere um, got some more stuff to come out as well on that uh, you know, you, you need to have uh, black voices being heard so that some of the issues which people may think of as being non-existent you know they can be explained to people so I mean I've had so many people come to me following some of the uh, publicity that I've had saying you've opened my eyes to this stuff I hadn't thought about this before mm. that had never occurred to me uh, and I absolutely understand that why would it occur to you there's lots of things about other issues that would never occur to me I'm not you know particularly up on uh, gender issues or I'm not particularly up on issues to do with sexuality that that's I don't think of those things because I have that privilege in those situations uh, as a heterosexual male um, but in terms of race you know these you know for people like me these things matter and they're part of our lived experience and so if people if other people deny that there is an issue they're basically denying our experience and that's not comfortable and um, and so you know, but for a lot of people that's not what they're doing they just don't think about it you know, they've not no reason to think about it i guess yeah if you just part of put, what we're doing is drawing their attention to it yeah if you just put an event on you're not deliberately you know excluding any section of the community are you but like you said almost without realizing it when you put up your stock photos of your average start line runners you are putting those sort of feelings out there without intending to absolutely i mean you know media representations are really powerful and you know they influence how people think not just you know not just how white people think but how black people think as well and um it's uh, and it's something that can be done differently uh yeah. there's a really so this this month is black history month which is uh something which i've been ambivalent about in the past um you know i'm not sure i haven't been sure about what its value has been but I'm, it's growing on me. And as part of this, this year, Black Trail Runners, we've been posting uh, several uh, stories about black athletes from the past uh, and their kind of, uh, you know, their stories and how they you know, dealt with uh, discrimination, etc. And these are people that some, you know, many people will never have heard of. Uh, indeed, some people I've never heard of. Uh, so, the, and the last one was... Uh, a uh, a black athlete who was the britain's first black gold medalist in the olympics in the 1920s um which 
immediately, you know, lots of people were like, wow, that's earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Surely not. But yeah, this, you know, this guy was from Guyana, which at the time was a British colony. So therefore he is British. Um, his father came over to London. He came with him. Um, and he was a great runner and uh, he won gold uh, in the 100 meters or whatever it was in those days. And um, but there's a really interesting uh, article. So it's a newspaper article from the time and it's him talking about himself and saying um, that he, like other black runners or in those days, colored runners, they would have called them. Um, you know, we can't run long distances. You know, I, I can only do, you know, we can only do sprints. Uh, you know, there's no, there are no coloured runners running further than kind of 400 metres or whatever. You're kind of reading this and you're thinking, you know, well, obviously that's nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> what is, what, what's causing that at the time? And it's, this is a, um, you know, there's obviously a narrative around at the time about what, black people are and what they can and can't do uh which has actually got no grounding in biological science at all uh, and it's got everything to do with social structures you know the same kind of thinking that said women can't run a marathon is saying black people can't run long distance and what makes it really obvious of course is that now the opposite is true right you've got the same kind of social structure saying oh yeah black people they're dominating distance running they must yeah. be better at this than white people <laughs> i mean that that's what's going on it's like hold on a minute you just changed you know you're telling me in a hundred years black people have evolved from being great sprinters to being great endurance runners um no that's clearly not the case you know there's other stuff going on here and it's stuff which is grounded frankly in racism mm. um the whole point of it is to segregate society based on some hierarchies which are about sustaining and maintaining uh, power differentials. Um, you know, if you want to justify invading someone's country and stealing their resources, invent racism and that will give you a reason why you're better than they and you can do this and they can't do anything about it. And that's pretty much how it happens. So, um, and what we're living now is still the tail end of that. Um, yeah, it's very easy. You know, we can say, yes, there's been progress. Clearly there has, but um, nearly as much as some people think uh, or would like to think. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's still plenty of work to do. Uh, if there wasn't, then black trail runners wouldn't have to exist. Mm. Uh, we wouldn't be looking at the numbers and saying, where are the black trail runners? They'd be there. But the fact is they're not there. So let's try and do something about it. Are you already starting to see any changes in sort of participation or is it still sort of too early? Because there's quite a lag uh, from someone seeing your photo on Instagram and <laughs> sign up to 100 miles. Yeah, I mean, week. I think, yeah, it's, it's too early, really. Uh, I mean, to be honest, we're still just even getting to the point of being able to collect the data. So the first campaign we had was to ask race organisers to actually include ethnicity in terms of the data that they collect from runners. Because up and without that, we're just guessing. Uh, people are saying, oh, yeah, there's no black runners, but we don't really know how many there are or not. So we have started to get that data. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely too early to see a change in that. Um, next year we've got some things uh, that we're planning to try and you know, definitely get 
big numbers of people into particular races uh, and hopefully we'll see some some change that's visible let's put it that way even if it's not at that point purely systemic but yeah i think you know there's only one direction this can go in it can't get any worse frankly so uh, anything we do has got to be good excellent if people want to get involved in black trail runners is it uh, how do they go about doing that so they can uh easily follow us on instagram uh which is black trail runners um we've got a facebook group uh which is it's a closed group but uh you just can ask to join it's open to anybody who is either a trail runner or black or not or an ally of black trail runners anyone thinking about running um so yeah just uh again that's just called black trail runners uh we have a website blacktrailrunners.com um so that can be used uh so yeah uh, all of those ways uh you know people can get in touch the instagram account is probably the easiest way to follow us and to find out what's going on excellent Cool, thank you. And then back to you for a bit then. Obviously, you're trying to finish off your Grand Slam, but what's your plans after this? Are you going to retire? <laughs> Put your feet up? Uh, yeah, you would think so, but uh, so I'll, I will take December off, I think. Um, oh, and uh, then next year, I'm hoping to, assuming that it goes ahead, I'm hoping to run uh, Deadwater, which is a six day oh. multi uh, day ultra uh 235 miles um yeah so that's my target for next year there's a couple of other things going on we uh we think we're going to have a black trail runners team entering a new event in scotland uh sort of around april uh which we don't have details of yet but it looks pretty spectacular uh so yeah we're looking forward to that uh but yeah that dead water is my ambition for next year yeah, that's, that's quite a big challenge that's not uh that's not a couple of park runs is it that's uh no it's yeah. well yeah i mean it's an ultra a day for six days so yeah <laughs> cool, well best of luck for that and if people want to follow how you get up to on that then how's best to follow you personally uh so uh, on Instagram, uh, I'm Ronnie Sunny, uh, Ronnie with a U, Sunny with an O, um, and uh, on Twitter, I am the Wooden O, um, which my interest in theatre. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was wondering where that came from. But yeah. <laughs> that was Shakespeare's description of the globe. So. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on. You've uh, yeah, you've definitely given me a lot to think about. So thank you for that thanks to sunny for coming on and i wish him the best of luck for the final 100 mile race at the south downs way next month i've still got the berlin episode to come once i finally get that sorted and recorded if there's any other races you'd like to see featured then please drop me a message game over